Chapter One of the Beast with Five Fingers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. The Beast with Five Fingers by W. F. Harvey. Chapter One. When I was a little boy, I once went with my father to call on Adrian Borlsover. I played on the floor with a black spaniel while my father appealed for a subscription. Just before we left, my father said, Mr. Borlsover, may my son here shake hands with you? It will be a thing to look back upon with pride when he grows to be a man. I came up to the bed on which the old man was lying, and put my hand in his, awed by the still beauty of his face. He spoke to me kindly, and hoped that I should always try to please my father. Then he placed his right hand on my head, and asked for a blessing to rest upon me. "'Amen,' said my father, and I followed him out of the room, feeling as if I wanted to cry. But my father was in excellent spirits." "'That old gentleman, Jim,' said he, "'is the most wonderful man in the whole town. "'For ten years he has been quite blind.' "'But I saw his eyes,' I said. "'They were ever so black and shiny. "'They weren't shut up like Nora's puppies. "'Can't he see at all?' "'And so I learnt for the first time "'that a man might have eyes that looked dark and beautiful and shining "'without being able to see.' "'Just like Mrs. Tomlinson has big ears,' I said, "'and can't hear at all except when Mr. Tomlinson shouts.' "'Jim,' said my father, "'it's not right to talk about a lady's ears. "'Remember what Mr. Borlsover said about pleasing me and being a good boy.' "'That was the only time I saw Adrian Borlsover. "'I soon forgot about him and the hand which he had laid in blessing on my head. "'But—' For a week I prayed that those dark, tender eyes might see. "'His spaniel may have puppies,' I said in my prayers, "'and he will never be able to know how funny they look with their eyes all closed up. "'Please let old Mr. Borlsover see.' Adrian Borlsover, as my father had said, was a wonderful man. He came of an eccentric family. Borlsover's sons, for some reason— always seemed to marry very ordinary women, which perhaps accounted for the fact that no Borlsover had ever been a genius, and only one Borlsover had been mad. But they were great champions of little causes, generous patrons of odd sciences, founders of querulous sects, trustworthy guides to the bypath meadows of erudition. Adrian was an authority on the fertilization of orchids. He had held at one time the family living at Borlsover Conyers, until a congenital weakness of the lungs obliged him to seek a less rigorous climate in the sunny south coast watering place where I had seen him. Occasionally he would relieve one or the other of the local clergy. My father described him as a fine preacher, who gave long and inspiring sermons from what many men would have considered unprofitable texts. "'An excellent proof,' he would add, 
of the truth of the doctrine of direct verbal inspiration. Adrian Borlsover was exceedingly clever with his hands. His penmanship was exquisite. He illustrated all his scientific papers, made his own woodcuts, and carved the reverdos that is at present the chief feature of interest in the church at Borlsover Corners. He had an exceedingly clever knack in cutting silhouettes for young ladies and paper pigs and cows for little children, and made more than one complicated wind instrument of his own devising. When he was fifty years old, Adrian Borlsover lost his sight. In a wonderfully short time, he had adapted himself to the new conditions of life. He quickly learned to read Braille. So marvelous indeed was his sense of touch that he was still able to maintain his interest in botany. The mere passing of his long, supple fingers over a flower was sufficient means for its identification, though occasionally he would use his lips. I have found several letters of his among my father's correspondence. In no case was there anything to show that he was afflicted with blindness, and this in spite of the fact that he exercised undue economy in the spacing of lines. Towards the close of his life the old man was credited with powers of touch that seemed almost uncanny. It has been said that he could tell at once the color of a ribbon placed between his fingers. My father would neither confirm nor deny the story. Adrian Borlsover was a bachelor. His elder brother George had married late in life, leaving one son, Eustace, who lived in the gloomy Georgian mansion at Borlsover Conyers, where he could work undisturbed in collecting material for his great book on heredity. Like his uncle, he was a remarkable man. The Borlsovers had always been born naturalists, but Eustace possessed in a special degree the power of systematizing his knowledge. He had received his university education in Germany, and then, after postgraduate work in Vienna and Naples, had traveled for four years in South America and the East, getting together a huge store of material for a new study into the processes of variation. He lived alone at Borlsover Conyers with Saunders, his secretary, a man who bore a somewhat dubious reputation in the district, but whose powers as a mathematician, combined with his business abilities, were invaluable to Eustace. Uncle and nephew saw little of each other. The visits of Eustace were confined to a week in the summer or autumn, long weeks that dragged almost as slowly as the bath-chair in which the old man was drawn along the sunny sea-front. In their way the two men were fond of each other, though their intimacy would doubtless have been greater had they shared the same religious views. Adrian held to the old-fashioned evangelical dogmas of his early manhood. His nephew, for many years, had been thinking of embracing Buddhism. Both men possessed, too, the reticence the Borlsovers had always shown, and which their enemies sometimes called hypocrisy. With Adrian it was a reticence as to the things he had left undone, but with Eustace it seemed that the curtain which he was so careful to leave undrawn hid something more than a half-empty chamber. Two years before his death, 
Adrian Borlsover developed, unknown to himself, the not uncommon power of automatic writing. Eustace made the discovery by accident. Adrian was sitting reading in bed, the forefinger of his left hand tracing the braille characters, when his nephew noticed that a pencil the old man held in his right hand was moving slowly across the opposite page. He left his seat in the window and sat down beside the bed. The right hand continued to move, and now he could see plainly that they were letters and words which it was forming. Adrian Borlsover, wrote the hand, Eustace Borlsover, George Borlsover, Francis Borlsover, Sigismund Borlsover, Adrian Borlsover, Eustace Borlsover, Saville Borlsover, B for Borlsover. Honesty is the best policy. Beautiful Belinda Borlsover. What curious nonsense, said Eustace to himself. King George III ascended the throne in 1760, wrote the hand. Crowd, a noun of multitude, a collection of individuals. Adrian Borlsover, Eustace Borlsover. It seems to me, said his uncle, closing the book, that you had much better make the most of the afternoon sunshine and take your walk now. I think perhaps I will, Eustace answered as he picked up the volume. I won't go far, and when I come back I can read to you those articles in nature about which we were speaking. He went along the promenade, but stopped at the first shelter, and seating himself in the corner best protected from the wind, he examined the book at leisure. Nearly every page was scored with a meaningless jumble of pencil marks, rows of capital letters, short words, long words, complete sentences, copy-book tags. The whole thing, in fact, had the appearance of a copy-book, and on a more careful scrutiny, Eustace thought that there was ample evidence to show that the handwriting at the beginning of the book, good though it was, was not nearly so good as the handwriting at the end. He left his uncle at the end of October, with a promise to return early in December. It seemed to him quite clear that the old man's power of automatic writing was developing rapidly, and for the first time he looked forward to a visit that combined duty with interest. But on his return he was at first disappointed. His uncle, he thought, looked older. He was listless, too, preferring others to read to him and dictating nearly all his letters. Not until the day before he left had Eustace an opportunity of observing Adrian Borlsover's new-found faculty. The old man, propped up in bed with pillows, had sunk into a light sleep. His two hands lay on the coverlet, his left hand tightly clasping his right. Eustace took an empty manuscript book and placed a pencil within reach of the fingers of the right hand. They snatched at it eagerly then dropped the pencil to unloose the left hand from its restraining grasp. "'Perhaps to prevent interference I had better hold that hand,' said Eustace to himself as he watched the pencil. Almost immediately it began to write. "'Blundering Borlsovers, unnecessarily unnatural, extraordinary eccentric, culpably curious.' "'Who are you?' 
asked Eustace in a low tone. "'Never you mind,' wrote the hand of Adrian. "'Is it my uncle who is writing?' "'Oh, my prophetic soul, mine uncle. "'Is it anyone I know?' "'Silly Eustace, you'll see me very soon.' "'When shall I see you?' "'When poor Adrian's dead.' Where shall I see you? Where shall you not? Instead of speaking his next question, Borlsover wrote it. What is the time? The finger dropped the pencil and moved three or four times across the paper. Then, picking up the pencil, they wrote, Ten minutes before four. Put your book away, Eustace. Adrian mustn't find us working at this sort of thing. He doesn't know what to make of it, and I won't have poor old Adrian disturbed. Au revoir. Adrian Borisolver awoke with a start. I've been dreaming again, he said. Such queer dreams of leaguered cities and forgotten towns. You were mixed up in this one, Eustace, though I can't remember how. Eustace, I want to warn you. Don't walk in doubtful paths. Choose your friends well. Your poor grandfather. A fit of coughing put an end to what he was saying, but Eustace saw that the hand was still writing. He managed, unnoticed, to draw the book away. I'll light the gas, he said, and ring for tea. On the other side of the bed curtain he saw the last sentences that had been written. It's too late, Adrian, he read. We're friends already, aren't we, Eustace Borlsover? On the following day, Eustace Borlsover left. He thought his uncle looked ill when he said goodbye, and the old man spoke despondently of the failure his life had been. Nonsense, uncle, said his nephew. You have got over your difficulties in a way not one in a hundred thousand would have done. Everyone marvels at your splendid perseverance in teaching your hand to take the place of your lost sight. To me it's been a revelation of the possibilities of education. Education, said his uncle dreamily, as if the word had started a new train of thought. Education is good so long as you know to whom and for what purpose you give it. But with the lower orders of men, the base and more sordid spirits, I have grave doubts as to its results. Well, good-bye, Eustace. I may not see you again. You are a true Borlsover with all the Borlsover faults. Marry, Eustace, marry some good, sensible girl. And if by any chance I don't see you again, my will is at my solicitor's. I've not left you any legacy, because I know you're well provided for, but I thought you might like to have my books. Oh, and there's just one other thing. You know, before the end, people often lose control over themselves and make absurd requests. Don't pay any attention to them, Eustace. Goodbye. And he held out his hand. Eustace took it. It remained in his a fraction of a second longer than he had expected, and gripped him with a virility that was surprising. There was, too, in its touch, a subtle sense of intimacy. "'Why, uncle,' he said, "'I shall see you alive and well for many long years to come.' Two months later, Adrian Borlsover died. 
End of chapter 1